Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today I'm telling Kate about the book Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly by Anthony Bourdain. So we're doing another food-related book. (laughs) The best kind of book. The pop culture pairings are getting harder and harder (laughs) because we've used them all up. (laughs) Um, but I actually remembered to do one this week, so yay me. <laughs> I actually Googled um, podcasts about the kitchen industry or the restaurant industry just to see if there were any. And it looks like there are, but none of them stood out to me as like what I would consider like interesting this. enough yeah i don't know that maybe that's shitty of me but it just felt very much like this is for like someone in the industry not for someone who's like outside of the industry and interested in it which is what i think kitchen yeah. confidential is about i mean it's for people in the industry too but it's i think it was more written for someone who wasn't in the industry so yeah, that makes sense yeah so i'm gonna tell you about it and then i have some questions for you and i'm gonna read you some different parts of it that i thought were really cool and i yeah i'm excited to tell you about it nice well i'm excited to hear about it um and first question you haven't read this right have you read anything no i have not okay um i think i've read maybe one or two of his articles but i've never read any of his books and i haven't read this one either Okay, cool. Well, um, I found it extremely well written in a voice that was very unique. And that was lovely because it's always nice to stumble upon a writer who stumble upon like I just fucking discovered Anthony Bourdain. I didn't mean to say it like that. (laughs) I discovered Anthony Bourdain, everyone. Um, I mean, really, he owes all of his fame and legacy to me, Molly Fox. So (laughs) you're welcome, Anthony Bourdain. So you're welcome, world. (laughs) Um, I just meant that I was pleasantly surprised by his talent. So anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard heard that. I've heard that his writing is really engaging. It is. And he uses a lot of, I, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, big words. And I find that refreshing because whenever a writer is using words that I don't know, it's always like, oh, nice. I'm learning new words for this person. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's fun. So, yeah, that's how I feel whenever I listen to any interview with Alec Baldwin. Oh, really? I've never listened to an interview with him, but like all of the words he uses are GRE words. Oh, my God. That's so funny. And I'm like, what? Your vocab is wild. Oh, that's so cool. I've never... No, I've never... I mean, the only things I've seen Alec Baldwin do are 30 Rock, really. So I don't think yeah. that that <laughs> is where he's getting the SATs. Um, I'm going to put his Fresh Air interview in the show notes because okay. it was it was incredible. I loved it. Oh, oh my God. Okay. I can't wait. Um, yeah. So but this was kind of the same thing where there was like a lot of big words happening and I, it not just big words that are like restaurant industry related, but just, he was using them in a way that was very interesting. So teach me Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you a summary to start. 
And then I have a, a question to follow it up. So this is the summary that I wrote. Kitchen Confidential is Anthony Bourdain's debut work, a memoir of sorts and a tell-all about life behind the scenes and the restaurant biz. Bourdain's writing is detailed, fluid, and gritty as he recalls his path to the kitchen from his first inkling that food could be more than what it meet, than what meets the eye while sampling, I think it was gazpacho, on a cruise to Europe when he was a child. Um, and he was surprised by the fact that the soup was served cold. So mm-hmm. he found that to be so like uh, it was like a fundamental shift in his worldview about food and the memoir is yeah it i love that he recalled that and then there's a part later where he's on that same trip to europe where he describes basically getting more and more adventurous that summer with food and he was out in a little boat on this part of the ocean in france and a the the guy that they were on the boat with was um, catching oysters. I'm not sure how you say that, but like picking oysters or whatever. And he was offering them to the people in the boat and no one wanted to try one. And Bourdain, who was just a child, was like, I'll do it. And he just found it so <laughs> like thrilling and delicious. And he it like has stayed with him forever. So he talks about that. And that. yeah, so he that he kind of sets up how he got started with his love of food. And from there, the memoir is pretty much chronological and it tracks his time studying at the CIA, which is the Culinary Institute of America, not the spy organization. (laughs) Um, So from studying at the CIA through his long held position as the head chef at Leal in New York city. So the book would be part memoir, part instruction manual, part expose and full of colorful descriptions of the secrets of life in the kitchen. Very cool. Yeah, I have primarily interacted with his work as it is on TV. Like, I've Mm -hmm. seen more clips of him than I have read articles or books, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm interested to uh, hear what he focuses on since this was his first book. Is that right? Yeah, I think he'd written some, maybe written some things before this, but this was, I believe, the first thing he got published. Okay. So this is what kind of put him on the map for his career in like film and or not film, but TV and as being more Mm -hmm. of a celebrity chef, Um, which I think based on his writing, he's kind of like, he was a little bit ashamed of the fact that he left the kitchen to be more of a like traveling, talking about food person rather than a chef. But um, Hmm. yeah, he seems to have some like... It, I think he felt that it made him less legitimate as a chef, um, mm-hmm. although I believe that that was his own kind of insecurity than reality, because I think he was like a very well-respected chef. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't know that much about the industry, but the only food service I've ever worked in was uh, not something that I would say we ever had a chef for. Uh, it was a pizza <laughs> place, so... Uh, there's that, but I feel like I don't really view the celebrity chefs and food journalism as being less legitimate. I always just really appreciate that they do that at all because they have a set of knowledge and a perspective that me as a lay woman does not Mm -hmm. have. 
Yeah, well, and I think there are certainly some celebrity chefs who give them a bad name, but I don't think that that's like every it applies to everybody. But this mm-hmm. is actually a good time to ask my first question since you brought up your time in food service. And I'm curious, do you think you would enjoy working in the restaurant biz? And like, imagine you had to, and you were like, this is your option. You have to do it. Do you think you'd enjoy it or not? And why? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Definitively, I would not. (laughs) Here's the thing. I am not the kind of person that thrives on being constantly stressed. I know there are people out there that love being at like they perform their best when they're stressed and Mm -hmm. their adrenaline is pumping and all of that. I'm more of a go at my own pace gal. So Mm -hmm. I feel like I would not enjoy being in some of the more high pressure kitchen situations. Uh, If I had to be in some sort of kitchen atmosphere, I would probably want to be at like a bakery where you could at least bake the goods at a different time. Like you don't have to serve them immediately. So to say, you know what I mean? Like you can play with the timeline a little bit more, I presume Mm -hmm. in like bakeries because you don't have to bake something then immediately run it out and it needs to be warm and all of that stuff. But I don't really think that that's a career I was made out for. (laughs) Even though I do love, love, love food. Yeah, I mean, loving food and wanting to make food for other people is definitely not the same thing. Um, But I feel the same way. I just think I would hate it so much. The hours, the stress, the heat, like, the, like, cutting yourself, like, the injury that would happen. (laughs) Like, I would fucking hate it. Um, But that doesn't mean that I don't love the results and getting to enjoy them. (laughs) Oh, for Um, sure. And I do like the result of making something that tastes good at the end mm -hmm, of it, but mm -hmm. I just don't want to be super stressed when I do it. I actually discovered this about myself when the pandemic happened and I was working from home for the first time and I realized, oh, I don't hate cooking. I hate cooking after having come home from a really long day at work and I only have 30 minutes to make something before I have to eat or my stomach is going to explode. Yeah. Like, I don't like that pressure of it. But when I'm cooking and I was able to, like, have a snack beforehand or, you know, go at my own pace or start at 530 because I didn't have to do a commute, then all of those things made it much less uh, intolerable for me. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Like, and there's when you have that commute and it eats up like an hour at both ends of your day, then you just have Mm -hmm. less time to yourself. And so spending an hour or an hour and a half cooking like a fucking elaborate meal is just like, and not even elaborate. Sometimes just cooking a normal meal takes that long to like clean up (laughs) and do all that shit. So yeah, yeah, I prep the vegetables and all of that. Yeah, like, ugh. So I'm totally with you. I, I I always knew that I liked to cook, but having the space to do it more after I stopped commuting was just amazing. So yeah, 100% agree. Totally. <laughs> um, okay, so 
I'm going to start with, I have a couple sections I'm going to focus on. He, like I said, the book is kind of chronological. So it starts with his childhood and really his inspiration around food and realizing that he loved it. Then it goes through his kind of early work and some struggles he has in his early life. And then I'm going to spend, I think most of the time focusing on this chapter called a day in the life where he really breaks down a day in his life once he's the head chef at Leal. And then um, I have like one last part that I might talk about if we have the time. So let's start with the early work and some of his struggles. So he's a child. He doesn't like give you a ton of context all the time. So he doesn't really tell you exactly how much money his family had or anything like that. But they went on a big ass cruise to Europe when he was a kid. So I'm assuming there was some kind of... (laughs) you know, something there. No money. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Not no money. Although it doesn't seem like they were like, you know, completely rolling in it based off of the way he describes things. So, but you know, he had this opportunity to explore different things when he was a child. And then when he was after high school, he started college and then dropped out. And there was a summer where he worked in a kitchen in, uh, it was somewhere on the East coast in like a little beach town that had like a summer, Um, season and so he worked there during the summer and that was his first real experience in a kitchen and he thought that he was like after that summer he had so much experience and he could really like hold his own in a kitchen and he had this experience where he realized that he was just like a complete novice and from there it like lit a fire under him to go to the culinary institute and really begin a career in it Um, but just because you get out of the Culinary Institute and you have this training doesn't mean that you're really, like, prepared for the the culinary industry. So Mm -hmm. he describes, I, again, the timeline is a little unclear, but I would say probably the first five to ten years of his time working in the restaurant industry, he jumped around from, like, one shithole to another some of them were better than others but he was struggling with drug abuse and so even when he had a good situation he was kind of like sabotaging it and so he's Mm -hmm. going through like a ton of different jobs and it's really hard work and some of them are just like terribly managed and it leads him to this point when I would say he was probably around like his 30s where he describes it as the wilderness so I'm going to read you a a portion that's kind of right before that, where he's describing how he got into this cycle of um, making poor choices. He says, my problem was the money. I was making too much of it. Instead of doing the smart thing, taking a massive pay cut to go work for one of the now numerous emerging stars of American cooking, I continued my trajectory of working for a series of knuckle-headed, wacko, one-lung operations, usually already hemorrhaging when I arrived. Instead of running off to France or California or even uptown to work in one of the three-star frog ponds as Comi, the kind of Euro-style stage that helps build resumes and character, I chased the money. I was hooked on a chef-sized paycheck and increasing dosages of heroin. I was condemned to become Mr. Traveling Fix-It, always arriving after a first chef had screwed things up horribly, the wolves already at the door. I was more of an undertaker than a doctor. I don't think I ever saved a single patient. They were terminal when I arrived. I might, at best, have only prolonged their death throes. (laughs) So I think that really sums up his writing style. Um, 
very vivid. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the other things that uh, I was thinking about as you were reading that, as he's talking about his relationship with um, drugs and that addiction journey is like when you are forced into, no matter what your personality is, when you're forced into those high stress situations and then also forced to work really odd hours that mess with your sleep schedule, I think there's a lot more likelihood that you might turn for some turn to something that is not uh, healthy for your body to cope with those things because yeah. you're not getting like sleep and you're not getting time to de-stress and Mm -hmm. you're just not getting um, all of these things that your body needs from you to function properly. And so it's like, well, yeah, then I'm going to turn to, you know, caffeine all the time and Coke to like pick me up and at 11 PM on a Friday so that I can finish my shift and, you know, all of these other things. Yeah. Um, a few months ago I was listening to that podcast, um, all fantasy, everything that you recommended to me. I love that podcast. I know. It's so good. Um, and they were talking about Coke and they had one of the best descriptions of doing cocaine that I've ever heard. And I've never done cocaine, so I don't know <laughs> personally, but they were describing it as like, you take cocaine when you're out and you've been drinking and you're starting to get tired, but you're not ready to go home and you're, you're starting to hit that wall. So you take the cocaine mm-hmm. And so you feel like you can keep going, but your body still hits the wall. <laughs> you just like <laughs> slam through it with the cocaine. <laughs> so the next day you like you wake up and your body has still gone through a wall. <laughs> you just didn't know at the time. <laughs> yeah. You just didn't realize you went through a wall until yeah. you woke up the next day. Yeah. Um, so I think that's like yeah. exactly right. You, you're using caffeine and like some other kind of upper all day. Maybe you do Coke when it's getting really bad and you're, exhausted but you have to keep going and you want it to feel fun and then when you are ready to sleep you can't so you like do something that's a downer to help you sleep and it's just this like horrible vicious cycle and Mm -hmm. yeah I think he maybe was prone to addiction anyway and he fell into those types of cycles and really struggled for I think most of his life to Mm -hmm. get out of them and I'm not going to talk about this very much, but for anyone who doesn't know, Anthony Bourdain died in 2018, 2018 of, um, from suicide. So he, I think his struggles followed him all of his life. And that's it. I, you could speculate about why, but I think when you start doing drugs, when you're very young, it's really hard for your brain to heal itself years down the line. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that much about his uh, mental state before that happened. I wasn't really, like, following, you know, his Mm -hmm. life all that closely. So uh, I don't really know what all contributed to that. But, yeah, it is obviously a very sad situation. He was definitely beloved by Mm -hmm. many, many people, and he had a really big following. Yeah. And I think something that I noticed throughout this book that he, of course, he didn't know at the time, but that feels so sad reading it now, knowing how he died. He he seems almost cavalier about his mental health and his like drug use and in a way that 
when he was writing this, I think he felt maybe more in control of it or like it was behind him or something, but it felt Mm -hmm. sad to me reading it, knowing that the struggles that he had when he was younger didn't actually go away completely and they altered his life fundamentally. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows? It just felt sad to me reading it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's kind of like the Sylvia Plath thing too, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, often when, or, you know, we've talked about this with a number of different like artists and creatives. And uh, when you know that th- that person died young for mm-hmm. whatever they died from, then it's, I think, difficult to decouple the yeah. dying young from the rest of their work and their lives mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what they had to say about all of those things while they were alive. Yeah. Yeah. And especially like, I think suicide is a hard one because although it's not the person's fault, like when you have mental illness, that's not something that you have control over. It's, it's different. It's a different conversation than like a, a terrible accident happening because mm-hmm. it especially reflects on the things they say because they had something to do with their death. And so mm-hmm. that it's just like a different layer of, um, I don't know, it, it, it's another lens to look at it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but so that was with me the whole time I was reading the book, just that knowledge, which I, I wish I had read this book before then because I think I'd have a much different feeling about it and opinion towards mm-hmm. it than I do now but regardless like, do you think that you would have felt that those comments are kind of the way he was talking about addiction and mental illness or you know mental health struggles however he identified that did you think do you think you would have identified that as being less cavalier or like you just kind of would have glossed over it because that's what that's how he writes it if you had read it before his death I think I would have felt less like it was foreshadowing, you know, because mm-hmm. I would have, I think I would have taken his word for it more that like, I, I'm in control of this. This is something that I managed to get out of. I survived this because ultimately he didn't. And that changed the, it, I think what ultimately it made me feel was that his narration of his own life was not as reliable as I would have felt if I had read this before his death, because looking at it after his death, it was like, well, I actually don't know that you knew yourself as well as you are pretending to know yourself. And maybe pretending isn't fair, but projecting. Yeah. Like the way you are speaking with such confidence about your life. Another example that I'll just jump ahead to, um, he's married when he's writing this book and this book was published in 2000 the first time and um since then he got divorced from the woman he was married to and in the book he talks about his marriage a lot and he also talks about like essentially neglecting his relationship for the restaurant industry and being he doesn't use the term married to the restaurant biz but like that's effectively what's happening it's like every cop show you've ever seen where the 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 
husband is married to his work and the sad wife is home with the kid and she's like I'm begging yeah, you, please yeah. you know and it's like uh-huh. it's so it's <laughs> oh this heroic man is like saving the world and it has that vibe Otherwise to known me. as madman <laughs> yeah truly it had that vibe of like this man doesn't understand that his relationship is actively dying while he writes about it not dying. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, he's like, look at all that we've withstood. And it's yeah. like, for now. <laughs> exactly. And it's for very now. much like my, thank God my wife puts up with this. She's so kind. And it's like, I actually think she hates this. And there's evidence of that since you all are no longer together. I don't know. Yeah, I just felt yeah. like because of the things that happened since he wrote the book, the way he talked about it, I felt less confident in it. And because there was two big things that sort of proved what he was saying wrong. And so all of that made me look at the book with skepticism because yeah. he was so wrong about two fundamental things that I felt like, well, what else were you not seeing as clearly as you are projecting here? Mm-hmm. So yeah. anyway, I think no, that's that my makes big a lot of critique. Sense. Okay. Anyway, how are you feeling so far? What do you think? Uh, good. I uh, think that's really interesting. Upon reading it in through a 2023 lens, that 23 years after he wrote this book, it is mm-hmm. going to seem different, regardless, right? Even if those things hadn't have happened. Whenever you read a book a significant period of time after it has actually been published, you're going to read it through a different lens than the author wrote it because you have those however many years of difference yeah. perspective. And so it's interesting to hear what exactly was different about reading it in 2023. And I think mm-hmm. that all makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's a book that's like a memoir or e- even a novel that's really rooted in the time that it's written in because time moves on and, uh, you know, everyone reserves the right to change and evolve and reflect and and be different than what they were 23 years ago that's like in no way reasonable to hold them to a standard that's like you have to be the same that would be crazy in fact i think you should i think that's how exactly yeah but the the differences are very noticeable and i i don't think that that's like a bad thing necessarily that i found his narration unreliable i think it just changes the experience for me versus what it might have been if I'd read it before 2018. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, now (laughs) I keep doing this like wrist flick. Jesus. Um, Let's keep going. (laughs) So uh, I want to spend some time on this chapter that I thought was very exemplary of his talent in writing. Um, It's called day in the life and it walks through a composite day in his life at the restaurant he became the longtime head chef at, Leal, which was based in New York City and it had other locations, but um, I think maybe all of them have closed now. The Leal in New York City closed in 2016. And this chapter is meticulously detailed and yet remains unboring as he goes through descriptions of inventorying, making lists, placing orders, and mentally prepping the day's specials. He takes us through the kitchen setup and through lunch and dinner service, highlighting the heat, the noise, the pace, 
he talks about how he just eats aspirin after aspirin, shouts at a purveyor over a big fuck up that he then realized was his fuck up, balances on the edge of the precipice (laughs) of dinner service as he describes how everything could grind to a halt with one fatal error. And you can really feel the energy and the fatigue. And I just kept wondering how anyone could do something like that day after day. And I thought it was really interesting because he, at one point is describing the way he is cooking something and he's just like walking through it almost the way a recipe would, where it's like, now you do this and this and this, but it wasn't, Mm -hmm. wasn't boring, which I just found so surprising, like how you could write something like that and have it be interesting and feel worth reading. Definitely. Um, But he ends this day in the life at a, a bar that he goes to instead of going home he is too like buzzed from all the adrenaline and so he says he goes to this little like dive bar that he ends up at sometimes and i'm just going to read through this section um, because i found it um very cool so he's you know he's at this bar he's described the way it looks it's like grungy and in the basement of a place and he says there are a few cookies meaning cooks from the hilton at the bar as well as a couple of saggy bruised looking strippers from a club up the street so rude (laughs) um tracy the owner of the joint is there which means i won't be paying for drinks tonight it's 1 a.m and i have to be in at 7 30 manana but the cramps are playing on the jukebox Tracy immediately fiddles with the machine so there's 20 free credits and that first beer tastes mighty good the Hilton cookies are arguing about mise en place one of them is bitching about another cook nicking salt off his station and the other cook doesn't see why that's such a big deal so I'm gonna get involved in this conversation the cramps tune is followed by the velvet singing pale blue eyes and Tracy suggests a shot of Georgian vodka he's got stashed in the freezer and that's how it ends so he he's kind of doing this live narration like it's happening as he's telling it to you mm-hmm. and i think it's it's so vivid to imagine going to this like dive bar at 1 a.m after you've been working since 7 30 and he's like i don't know almost 40 at this point like jesus christ there's no way i could do it at 31 um <laughs> But also this whole time he's married and his wife is not with him. So it's just like, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you got divorced. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, what? it's just like, come on. <laughs> yeah. You had to see that this wasn't going to work. <laughs> but um, this is so interesting. It reminds me of, and I know, uh, I actually, I have three things that this passage reminds me of the first is that Mm -hmm. uh, last night I watched the uh, Oscar nominated movie Tar and it's a very talky movie it's about uh, an orchestra conductor who (laughs) uh, is uh, taking advantage of a lot of younger women and uh, the orchestra is the conductor is played by Kate Blanchett and she gives an incredible performance Anyway, so uh, that movie has so many monologues, and one of the ways that it stays interesting to watch is that the cinematography is really dynamic, and I think that there's something to be said about portraying something that could otherwise easily be really boring, but doing so in an interesting way, and how far that goes. 
Yeah. And that's kind of what this is reminding me of. Uh, and similarly, uh, kind of just capturing what real life in the kitchen industry feels like. I mean, we talked briefly about the bear, which is about the kitchen yes. industry. And there's so there's one episode in particular where they shoot it with a lot of tracking shots. So the entire episode feels like one continuous stressful moment. And like that, I think, again, with it just feeling so vivid, like you were actually there and how much more engaging that is than if they would have just presented it like, here's a TV show you're watching and we want you to know that these characters feel stressed. And instead it's like, yeah, we're going to make you feel stressed, you know? (laughs) So totally like, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. And the way that artists choose to artists, writers, directors, whatever, choose to portray that makes just such a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this, episode or episode jesus christ this chapter reminded me a lot of the bear so much so that i wonder if they used some of anthony's writing for inspiration maybe they didn't need to because i'm sure all kitchens have that same quality but i think the way bourdain was able to portray it through writing and you could feel the stress of it through the writing is like incredible and the other thing that Maybe it was just more me, but I'm sure other people can relate to it too. Whenever someone is describing like abusing their body through like drug use or lack of sleep or like he says he's taken like, I don't, it was like 12 aspirin or something Mm -hmm. throughout the day. Like anything like that, it, it makes me feel stressed for their body that I'm like, oh my God, how could your body be functioning through this? And like the truth is like probably not well. Like that it's probably not. Yeah, it probably did take its toll, but but do we know what that toll was? Probably not, because we didn't have to live in that body, but it didn't go unnoticed, certainly. Right. right. (laughs) No. No. And if like I had been reading this before his death, I would be worried that he was gonna have a heart attack Mm. young. Because it's like I just don't know how you could put yourself through that kind of strain and chemical use and not have it Mm -hmm. affect you. Um, actually my boyfriend and I were talking about this. I forget what made me say something about it, but it was something to this effect that like, how do some people just like drink bourbon and eat steak and take a million ibuprofen and do cocaine and they're fine. (laughs) And I like barely eat salt and I'm worried about my like body. And he's like, it's the anxiety. And I was just like, shut up. Okay. I know it is. I'm so mad (laughs) that like these people Yeah, it was just like the <laughs> wait, what? Yeah, the obviously, effect of anxiety <laughs> is being <laughs> well. It's like okay, yes, the effects of anxiety, but it's also like those people aren't anxious about any of those activities. That's that's yeah. The, that was his point. He was like, the reason you it affects you is because you're anxious yeah. about it, and those people aren't anxious about it, and that's why they can eat like that, and they they like will be fine, yeah. which isn't always true, but it just feels like sure. sometimes that's the case. And I was like. Why can't I just stop being anxious, though? <laughs> I'm putting a call out to see if someone can just stop my anxiety. Um, yeah, I yeah. think, too, like, there's 
I, I think we underestimate often the role of genetics in how our bodies can or cannot handle something because we want to feel mm-hmm. like we're in control of our health and that's only true to a certain extent. Yeah. And so I just want to also say I think genetics have a huge role and for some people eating red meat yeah. doesn't bother them at all. For other people it does. And yeah. it just like I think that genetics are a key component to that as well. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. But um in terms no, but you're of right. the you're right. uh relationship stuff though too i have also been watching a tv show on hulu called the um fleischman is in trouble which is about okay a man played by jesse eisenberg i think that's his name um oh yeah social network uh who gets a divorce Mm -hmm. and it's just the tale of his divorce in middle age and what that turns out to look like from his perspective And uh, one of the things that you see happening throughout the series is that his ex-wife that he gets a divorce from uh, is constantly working Mm -hmm. and she's like uh, always putting so much of herself into her work. And it is hard to be like an outsider looking in and being like, hey, if you want to have a relationship, you're going to have to devote some time to that relationship you know like it doesn't have to be the only thing that you devote time to certainly but you can't have a relationship if you never spend time with the other person or talk to them or are involved in their life at all like that just isn't really much of a relationship yeah and actually like throughout the book Bourdain would be you know talking about his crazy schedule and all these late nights and the drug use and all that and then he would mention he would like throw in there and then i had a girlfriend at home and it was just like what how i how did you possibly did have she a know girlfriend? she was your girlfriend and so he would kind of pepper that in <laughs> yeah and i was just like are you sure that you have a girlfriend because i'm not so it, it just it's like very much that energy where it's like you do have to put like yeah. a little bit of time into a yeah otherwise it's just like um, oh that's a person that i occasionally see which is like not the same thing as yeah like, and we like sleep yeah together not the same thing as like <laughs> um your girlfriend or wife or whatever you know right which like you know i'm judging this and i have really no idea what it was like i'm just basing it off of his description of it but well, that's it just felt do. like based that's on how, how he was describing it, so yeah his yeah but you know based on the hours it sounds like he was working i just couldn't imagine how he had time for Mm -hmm. a relationship but maybe the truth is he didn't yeah (laughs) which you know checks out makes sense yeah checks out exactly um so i i do have another question for you and it's kind of shifting gears away from the restaurant industry and the topic to more of the like the topic of memoirs because this is a memoir and I was actually recommended this book by a friend. We were talking about memoirs. We're both interested in writing. And um, so this is a shout out to Johnny. Thank you for the recommendation and also buying the book for me because that was very nice. <laughs> so we we got on this topic because we were – he was telling me about a memoir he's interested in writing and the structure that he would like to apply – And so I read the memoir with that in mind of just like, you know, what makes a good memoir Mm -hmm. and what kind of structure did Bourdain employ throughout this? And it made me curious about your thoughts on it. And 
the question I was going to ask is like, if you were going to write a memoir, how would you structure it? But that felt almost unfair because I know that you are not necessarily interested in doing that. (laughs) So I thought maybe a better question would be when you've read memoirs, what do you like in a memoir? What do you feel like makes it a good structure? Because, you know, writing about your life is hard since there's so much that you could write about. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) And everyone has a different kind of strategy for how they go about creating a narrative that is readable. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what, in your experience, you think makes a good memoir. Yeah, that's a good question. I think what I typically am drawn to are memoirs that can convey a theme throughout someone's life in a concise way. Uh, A lot of times people think that memoirs are actually biography or autobiographies, and they're not. Those are two separate Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. A memoir is meant Mm -hmm. to be snippets or vignettes of someone's life that help to convey a larger theme throughout their life, as opposed to it being everything that's ever happened to you. Uh, Second thing I would say that I really appreciate and quite honestly will turn me off of a book if this is not true, is someone not being self-reflective in their memoir. There are a lot of folks who will write a story and then not revisit it from the perspective from which they're writing it, but rather just like from the perspective of themselves at that time when that thing was happening to them. And the self-reflective piece is what I love about memoirs is I want you to tell me, yes, in retrospect, I feel differently now, or I feel the exact same and I was really fucking justified or whatever, you know, but I I want that self-reflective bit. And I find that to be really important. And if it's not there, I will put the book down. Um, In terms of structure, I have read a lot of memoirs. I find that uh, one of the ones Actually, a few of the ones that I want to give a shout out to as being structurally innovative and fascinating was um, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, who uh, wrote a memoir about her abusive relationship with her ex-girlfriend. I don't think they were married. I think it was girlfriend. Um, And she wrote it in short vignettes that got kind of increasingly more surreal but still told the true story. And it was like that to imitate what it's like to have that abusive relationship acting on your mind and what how it warps your yeah. perspective. And that was incredible. The other one is by uh, Alison Bechtel, who wrote a, uh, just as in general, a graphic uh, mm-hmm. novelist and mm-hmm. wrote a memoir called Fun Home that I absolutely adored. And one of the things that felt so intimate about her reflections in that memoir was that she was able mm-hmm. to put images alongside that. And the the drawings that she has, the perspective from which she draws, um, the framing of those drawings, all of that really helped make it feel very close and intimate and vulnerable in a way that a lot of pure writing memoirs, I think, have trouble achieving. Yeah. Definitely. Um, okay, cool. That was, that's good. I, I always trust your opinion on those types of things. So <laughs> I knew it'd be good to 
get it. I think that you're very good at, um, I don't know how to describe it. Cause it's like, when I read something, I definitely absorb it. Obviously <laughs> I like made it through grad school and I have a <laughs> podcast about books, but I, th- I don't think I analyze it as, mm um intentionally as you do like maybe that's not something you try to do it's just something that comes naturally but if i am reflecting on it like i can pull out like oh yeah i I can notice this and i understood this but i feel like you do it more naturally as you're reading a book and unless someone is like asking me to do that work i'm not doing it as well so i always love the your insight into those things because i feel like it's harder for me to notice yeah i um I think I just enjoy doing that, um, which is lame, but... No, it's not. <laughs> That's okay. It's lame. It's not lame. It's not. It's, it's like, the best. oh, you give yourself grad school homework in your mind on a book that no one will ask you about until eight years later, maybe? That's cool of you. I think it is cool of you. I, and I don't, I don't give myself grad school homework until the night before my podcast when I'm writing a book report and wishing I'd done it sooner. Um, uh, why did we do this but... podcast about books? Should have just been about food. Food had so much. To talk well, about. it's it's turning into that. True, true. <laughs> <laughs> had a couple of episodes about food, so it all comes yes. full circle. Um, it's happening. Anyway, that's pretty much what I have to say about this book. I will share my pop culture pairings, which are um, a cookbook by one of my favorite. I guess she's more of a baker than a chef, but she can do both things. And I mean, she considers herself a pastry chef, so she's a chef. Um, her name is Claire Soffitz, and she used to be on Bon Appetit. She worked at Bon Appetit, and she was um, very well known for her videos that she made called Gourmet Makes, where she would try to make a uh, like an Oreo or a Gusher or some lowbrow food although oreos are highbrow in my book but she'd make like um, a <laughs> like something like that she'd make it gourmet so she would try to break down the recipe and reverse engineer it into something that was more elevated and she after she left bon appetit uh, in 2020 i think she had been working on this cookbook called dessert person and it's I get not this book Oh, it's like technically perfect. Her descriptions are so useful. She is such a talented teacher and it's beautiful. Like the photographs, the she has this oh, I love that. something you will appreciate so much at the beginning, which is this graph that breaks down every single recipe in the book and marks it from like length of time it takes and level of difficulty. So like X axis is like Wow, length what of a time. what a true national treasure. And then Y is like difficulty so you can plot if you want something really easy and very quick you know what you've got and so on and it's just like mm, claire soffitz congratulations on an absolute exquisite that should it should be illegal to publish a a cookbook without Without that that. it's incredible and i just appreciate it i want people going to jail if they have if they they haven't told me how hard it is truly i have made not as many recipes as i would have liked out of that book so far but one that i've made a couple of times that is consistently amazing is this almond poppy seed cake And it's like a a recipe from a family friend that her mom had been making for years. And it's just fucking divine. So 
Oh, I get the book. That. It's beautiful. It's great. If you have a birthday coming up or something. I'm just going to buy it anyway. Just get the book. <laughs> I'm um, going to buy it for my birthday in October, but in February. <laughs> and the, then the other pairing that I was going to give was um, because I was reading this book first and foremost as a memoir. And because that's how it was recommended to me. I would recommend to you all, if you're interested in memoirs, reading the book The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. She herself is a memoirist, and she read this book on how to write a memoir and the way she, the things she's learned in her years of writing memoirs. Hmm. So it, it, you know, it's not like a, it's not like an interesting read, like a story read, but it's instructional and it is interesting and fun and it's very well written. And if you're interested in like building your skills at writing or memoir, that was a good one. Hmm. Interesting. I do have one last question for you. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> and but going back to food. Always. Since we both love food and eating in general, if you could pick one country or city or something like that to do a food tour in, what would you pick? Okay, that's impossible. Right? <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Here are the seven or so things that just popped into my mind okay, simultaneously. Tell me. <laughs> You're like, ah, I can't. What do I pick? Tell me everything. Um, pasta in Italy. Yes. Uh, wine 100%. tours in France. <gasps> yes. Uh, all food in Mexico. Mm. Um, would love to actually do uh, an, another visit to Greece and mm, eat more yes. seafood because it was all of their octopus was divine oh Um, yes would also love to uh have some experience of visiting uh the middle east and having authentic middle eastern Mm, food which mm -hmm. i love a lot i love Mm -hmm. middle eastern food um I don't know, man. That is such a tough question. I was. was I also just had Thai food last night, though, and I was telling Chris that as much as I would absolutely love to visit uh, Thailand, and obviously would love to just eat all the Thai food, Mm -hmm. I would be very, very nervous about eating something with too much spice because I, I, I love, I like spicy food in the Mm -hmm. version of like American spicy food sure, and not in the version of like necessarily Thai spicy food (laughs) because I feel like there's a difference and it can Mm -hmm. escalate a lot. So, um, and then obviously sushi in Japan. I mean, come on. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Say more. No. You okay, so basically not. the whole world and I want to eat everything. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to go on a food tour to the world. Thank you and good night. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better answer, Kate. That so was embarrassing. I'm like, perfect. all? All is my answer? Oh, that was so oh, great. Man. Thank you. Um, well, with that, <laughs> I think we should clear the table. <laughs> Um, that's what I have. Thanks so much for listening to Kitchen Confidential. Yeah, and join us again next time for more of our bullshit. Mm-hmm.